Welcome to In the Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. Have you ever wondered about the price we pay for self-awareness? We enjoy a more complex awareness than the other animals, and that awareness has broad untold benefits and a wider range of experiences that are not available to the other creatures. Even if one's life is difficult, almost all of us would prefer the level of self-awareness that comes with being human. As Socrates said, it is better to be a human dissatisfied than a pig satisfied. But of course, the price we pay for self-awareness, the ticket to the fair of life, is the awareness of our own mortality, what William James called the worm at the core. My guest today is Sheldon Solomon, the legendary professor of psychology at Skidmore College, where he's been teaching since 1980. Sheldon, along with two other young professors at the time, became interested in the work of Ernest Becker, who won the Pulitzer Prize in 1974 for his book, The Denial of Death, in which he examined the awareness of death on human behavior and the strategies that developed in humans to mitigate their fear of it. For the past 35 years, Sheldon and his colleagues, funded by the National Science Foundation and others, have designed studies that prove Becker's theories and culminated in a body of work known as terror management theory. This work has now generated hundreds of other research studies around the world. I have been following Sheldon's lectures for a couple years on YouTube and have just read his excellent new book, which he co-wrote with his longtime colleagues, Jeff Greenberg and Tom Pajinski. It's called The Worm at the Core, On the Role of Death in Life. Now, lest you think this will be an overly gloomy conversation, take note that the final words of The Worm at the Core, found in the acknowledgement section, is a quote from Sherwood Anderson's tombstone. Life, not death, is the great adventure. Sheldon, welcome. Your work, uh, originally inspired, of course, by Ernest Becker's thinking and work and his book, The The Denial of Death. Uh, And you and your colleagues have for 35 years been conducting studies to essentially show the two primary ways of managing terror (laughs) of death. Um, I know, uh, of course, one is culture, which includes religion, and the other is self-esteem. Could you just you know, in a nutshell, for our listeners, talk a little bit about that. Yes, certainly, although you already did a a good job, Catherine. Basically, uh, Ernest Becker uh, wins a Pulitzer Prize in uh, 1973 uh, by claiming that uh, human beings are unique, uh, among other things, because uh, we have this big brain, and that gives us the capacity to think abstractly and symbolically and imagine things that don't exist and then make them real. And all of that is tremendous and also tremendously uplifting, by the way. But he also points out that by virtue of our sublime cognitive capacities, that we also realize that we exist. And therefore, by extension, that like all living things, we will someday die. And not only that we're going to die, but that we could die at any time for reasons that we can't anticipate or control. And so according to Becker, uh, in order to stand up every day, because otherwise, if that's the only thing that you're you're thinking about, I'm going to die someday, I could walk outside and and get hit by a comet or an earthquake, uh, then you'd you'd be overwhelmed uh, with existential terror. 
And what Becker proposes is that human beings manage that terror uh, by subscribing to culturally constructed beliefs about the nature of reality that gives them a sense that they're valuable people in a meaningful universe. And when you're lucky enough to feel that way, uh, that you're a person of value in a world of meaning, that's what he calls self-esteem. And so for Becker, whether we're aware of it or not, and most often we're not, uh, we are highly motivated to maintain confidence in the veracity of our cultural worldview and faith in the proposition uh, that we're valuable people, that is, that we have self-esteem. And whenever either of those what we call twin pillars of terror management, the culture, or self-esteem is threatened, uh, we respond in a variety of defensive ways in order to bolster our faith in our culture and ourselves. Yes, and and at the uh, extreme of that is, is of course, war. But even with all of that, uh, those comforting buffers, um, Becker also spoke about a residual death anxiety. Yes, Uh, and this... So that the that the strategies don't quite work. That there's a rumble of panic as he yeah, said. and I love that phrase. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is, I think, what what makes uh, Becker's ideas uh, at times so, uh, at least for me personally, just so profoundly discombobulating. Because mm-hmm. uh, what he points out is that uh, you know generally uh, the, the belief in our culture and the, the sense that we're people of value that serves us well. But these are uh, humanly created symbolic constructions. And and despite their great power, our religions, our politics, our economics, uh, they're essentially symbolic, whereas death is a very physical event. And the bottom line, Becker says, is that no symbol is up to the impossible challenge of completely eradicating death anxiety. And uh, there's this residual terror, what Becker describes uh, as the rumble of panic beneath the surface of consciousness. And what he says, and this is the primary point of his book, Escape from Evil, is that that death anxiety, it's so profoundly uncomfortable and unacceptable that the first thing that we do is repress it. Uh, But we can't keep it inside of us. And so that right after that, we project it onto other people, uh, groups of people that we just declare to be the all-encompassing repositories of evil, the the eradication of which would make life on earth as it's purported to be in heaven. And and so the really, I think, disarming uh, point that Becker tries to make is that most of the evil in the world uh, ironically comes from people self-righteously proclaiming that they're about to rid the world of evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've sure got a lot of that going on. There's in, no shortage, that's yeah. right. <laughs> um, uh, you know, but yet uh, the reliance on these cultural symbols and these religious beliefs and basically magical thinking in general uh, requires a willing suspension of disbelief. That's right. And, and he, of course, talked about the necessary lies, you know, that we subscribe to. Um, but what about people who are more prone to realism? What comforts do they have? And let's say somebody who's prone to realism, not very interested in magical beliefs, and also not doesn't have a lot of self-esteem either. Yeah, okay, that's actually a great question. And... Um, what Becker does, and here he's following Otto Rank, 
uh, is to propose um, that that's where the various psychological disorders arise. Mm. Now, if he were alive today, I, I think he would be very careful to stipulate that, uh, of course, uh, different kinds of psychological disorders have different kinds of neuroanatomical and biochemical substrates. And, and having said that, though, uh, the point that Becker makes following Ronk is that we tend to think of uh, people who are having psychological difficulties uh, as deranged, whereas th those of us who are nearly normal are, quote, seeing the world as it actually is. And what Becker does is to turn that idea on its head. Mm -hmm. and, and this is from Ronk, where he's like, no, uh, that's, that's not what's going on. In fact, the people that we declare uh, to be deranged are often such because they're incapable uh, of adopting a constructive illusion. In other words, they're not the deluded ones. They're mm -hmm. the ones that actually see the reality of the human condition mm -hmm. quite clearly. But as you put it very well earlier, they don't have uh, the self-esteem or the actual skills to do anything about it. And so here's the legions of the depressed and the neurotics, or, or today we wouldn't use that term necessarily, but the litany of folks that uh, are profoundly undermined by all sorts of anxiety disorders, everything. But that would make it seem that um, people who are prone to realism uh, that it's basically maladaptive. Well, that's correct. And in, in the language of contemporary psychobabble in, in academic psychology, they call that depressive realism. Mm -hmm. It turns out that depressed people actually um, it, see things, quote, more accurately, and they're less prone uh, to having biased assessments of right. their own Opti selves. They're less prone to optimism bias, yeah. That's correct. And yeah, yeah. so here's where a touch of uh, illusion is a good thing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's um, right. You know, it's really, it's kind of depressing to even think about that. It is. Um, that's right. Um, some of E.O. Wilson's work in sociobiology proposes that when we see behaviors that are universally found within a species, such as the ways that, uh, you know, across history and all cultures, people have been inclined to magical beliefs, you know, in all forms. Uh, and he proposes that there might be a, a, a genetic predisposition, you know, that there might be some, you know, that whenever we see those kinds of universal traits, there might be a genetic component to it. And that we all fall perhaps on a spectrum whereby, you know, some people, just as in music, some people are tone deaf and some, there's a few Mozarts and Beethovens around, um, that in, in, in the ability to just accept and be indoctrinated at a young age into, uh, you know, your culture, your, your culture's beliefs, that there's, there are some people that are better at that than others. Yes, absolutely. And I, and I give Wilson a lot of credit uh, because he's the only one that I'm aware of, of the kind of evolutionary types uh, that is willing to grant that there may be some value from an evolutionary point of view uh, to subscribing to supernatural beliefs that uh, literally make the world magical and enchanted. 
So, you know, kind of the Richard Dawkins and the Sam Harris's uh, and the Dennett's of the world uh, who just dismiss religion and, and, and folks that oh, magical thinking, as you put it. Uh, that just see that as some sort of unfortunate psychopathology, uh, I think are missing an important point, which is that from an evolutionary point of view, it doesn't matter if your beliefs are, quote, true or not. Uh, what matters is if they serve an adaptive function. And, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that it has served us well. Uh, when we write about these things, we just say our ancestors would have expired uh, from anxiety or despair. Right. If they did not come up with the ingenious solution, which is nature's unacceptable because you can't control it and ultimately will be terminated by it. Uh, so why not construct supernature? I think the supernatural was one of the most ingenious inventions in the history of our species. Yeah, the problem is that you really can't will yourself to Absolutely. believe it, you know, if you happen to be on the end of the spectrum, uh, which <laughs> just doesn't. That's you know what? That's a brilliant observation, Catherine, and to which I would add that it becomes as Becker does when he points out that uh, the, this ability to suspend disbelief uh, is also varies as a function of historical context. Uh, and, and so here's Nietzsche, you know, in the 1870s, his famous proclamation, God is dead. And everybody knows that, uh, but very few people, you know, have read the paragraph where that comes from, where Nietzsche goes on to say Christianity has become unbelievable, and he's not being cynical. He's just saying, oh, things are changing so rapidly. We've got Darwin with the theory of evolution, got the Industrial Revolution. you got this Enlightenment notion that turns out to be quite crazy, which is that progress is inevitable. And all of these things got kind of colluded historically to make it more difficult to believe things that for most of human history were utterly credible, if for no other reason than everybody else believed them. Yes, right, yeah. And I would imagine, you know, that when you indoctrinate a child, just as we were saying before about E.O. Wilson's work, just that the neurobiology starts to kind of collude and, and just forms powerful tracks, you know, yes. that, that are easily revisited. Um, I loved the line in your book, the body is the closest we come to touching any kind of reality. Uh, so in that regard, and with, uh, with keeping the, the death, um, you know, uh, managing death fears in mind, let's talk about the role of sexuality uh, in this regard, because I would imagine that that's also a very powerful buffer, though I don't see that you mention it as much in that context. I know you did you did talk about it in your book. Right. Um, but of course, you know, as the French say, you know, it's la petite mort, the little death. That's right. Um, and it's also our way of kind of momentarily escaping, you know, being released from time and space. You yes. Know? So the, and good. So you, you've got it. And uh, I appreciate how much you're obviously acquainted uh, with the ideas in our book, because and these are again, Becker makes these points, but uh, uh, by his own admission, they're not new points. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, so it was Otto Rank who said that, uh, you know, the psychological impetus for the creation of the concept of soul uh, was a, a thinly veiled effort to transcend death by abandoning the body. 
and 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 that in turn goes back to Aristotle, uh, you know, who pointed out that uh, you know that our our bodies uh, will surely die, uh, but our souls uh, may be indestructible thereafter. And so, you know, the whole Western tradition, well, that actually is is both in uh, philosophical thought as well as religious thought, uh, you know, kind of comes to fruition. Uh, with Descartes, with the you know famous declaration, I think, therefore I am, and Descartes then goes on to say, yeah, and you don't need a body to think, and so if you don't need a body to think, then what's ever doing the thinking is going to be around forever. But don't we need a brain to think? Well, not according to these folks. Yeah, now, right. of course, today that would seem ludicrous. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah. uh, back in the day, uh, the, the soul and the body were just momentarily conjoined. And the, the point that Becker and Ronk makes is that, uh, like it or not, uh, we are ensconced in a physical carcass that will ultimately age, decay, and die. Right, but then get to get to your question, Catherine, which is about sexuality. And uh, this is a great one. Uh, Becker in The Denial and, of Death, uh, he has a very arresting uh, little haiku or something that I could see getting in a, a little fortune cookie in a Chinese restaurant if they were existentially oriented. He says, sex and death are twins. Yes. Yeah. And it's an arresting phrase because the, the point uh, that uh, Becker makes is there's actually two points. One is that uh, when engaged in sexual activities, uh, we're literally no different than the elephants copulating at the zoo. And, and so in some ways, the physical aspects of sex remind us very graphically uh, that we're animals. And of course, animals being products of nature die. And so there's one connection uh, between sexuality and death. And then uh, Becker goes on and it gets a little bit more nuanced where he says, oh, yes, but sex also divests us of our individuality uh, because uh, when we engage in, in sex in the service of reproduction, you know, you're basically acknowledging uh, that you're a transient ephemeral creature carrying the baton of life once around the track. And then you're handing off to the next generation and, you know, joining the legions of now dead and unremembered. And so the, the downside, uh, according to Becker, is that uh, sex makes us uncomfortable, some of us at times, uh, because it conjures up images of mortality. And in fact, in our studies, uh, we've shown that that's true. So when we remind people that they will someday die, uh, they find uh, having sex, at least the physical aspects of sexuality, more repugnant. And conversely, when we ask people to think about the physical aspects of sex, that brings unconscious death thoughts more readily to mind. And so, and but. You also mentioned the other side, which is that it is through sexual activity, uh, not as a mechanical exercise uh, of a biological function or the momentary exploitation of another human being, uh, but sex at its best, uh, you know, a, a meaningful and a mutually voluntary activity between consenting people well, 
that does for the moment uh, conjoin us with another human being in a loving way uh, that it does obliterate momentarily the confines or the tyranny of time and space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so this is not to suggest that sex and is... And the tyranny of the self. That's correct. And so it, it, it can be both the worst and the best. And that's what makes life complex, of course. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, well, I also found it, I mean, that was very interesting. I found that whole part of your, of your book incredibly interesting. Um, I found the whole book interesting, actually. Well, thank you. But um, also, it sort of torqued my mind quite a bit when I understood from your work that when people are reminded of death, they become less magnanimous to people of a different persuasion than themselves. I had always sort of assumed, and I've known a lot of hospice workers through my own work and so on, you know, you hear a lot of stories about people feeling a lot of forgiveness at that time of, of nearing the end. Um, but t- talk a little bit about this, that, that when, people are, when people are reminded of death and they think of the other, of any other, uh, they're a lot more mean about it. Yeah. All right. So, again, you made a great point that uh, just like sexuality it cuts both ways. So it, it, in our studies, and this is following Becker's point, especially in the book Escape from Evil, uh, where he says, look, uh, we, we embrace these cultural worldviews to manage our own existential terror. But the problem is, is that the mere existence of people who have different worldviews is a psychological kick in the groin, because if we accept the validity of an alternative conception of reality, we necessarily undermine the confidence with which we subscribe to our own. And so what Becker hypothesized is that when we encounter someone who's different, whether we're aware of it or not, that that's threatening. And that what we often do is to berate people who are different, because if you belittle the possessor of an alternative conception of reality, they no longer pose a threat to your own. Or at the same time that we're belittling them, uh, we just try to get them to dispose of their beliefs and to adopt ours instead. And of course, the Christian missionaries are the best example of that historically. And if that doesn't work, just kill those other people, you know, thus proving uh, that your ideas and your God was superior after all. And sure enough, our studies show that that's what happens. And so, for example, when Christians are reminded of their mortality, uh, they like fellow Christians more. And they're very hostile and negative towards Jewish people. In Israel, when Jewish people are reminded of their mortality, they like Jewish people more. And they hate Christians and Arabs. Ditto in more than 30 countries around the world on five different continents. So, And not only do death reminders make us more negatively predisposed to people who are different, it also alters our behavior towards them. So when we're reminded of death, Germany, sit closer to fellow Germans and further away from people who look like they're foreigners. Uh, When people are reminded of death and given the opportunity to physically harm other people who don't share their beliefs, uh, they will do that. And um, it's even scarier because like Iranians, for example, when they're reminded of their mortality, uh, they become more supportive of suicide bombings and more willing to become a martyr themselves. Mm. 
And in the U.S., uh, to be glib and stupid, uh, Americans are pragmatic. They're not going to blow themselves up, but we've always been happy to blow other people up. And so Americans reminded of their mortality, become more supportive of preemptive biological, nuclear and chemical attacks on countries who don't presently threaten us. And this is particularly true uh, of uh, Americans who identify as politically conservative, which, of course, scares me given the upcoming election. And so there's ample evidence that uh, the reminders of death, and I should be a little bit more precise here because when I say that, Catherine, the way that we remind people of death in our studies, sometimes we just ask them to write a few sentences where we're like, please describe the thoughts and feelings that your own death arouse in you. And then other times we go outdoors and we interview some people in front of a funeral home and other people either 100 meters to either side, thinking that just standing in front of a funeral home uh, will bring intimations of mortality into one's head. And then other times it's even more subtle. We bring people into the lab and we flash the word death so fast on the computer, 28 milliseconds, that you can't even see it. And Whenever that happens, that's when we get the effect that we call worldview defense. You, you like people more if they share your beliefs and you hate them a great deal if they do not. And that's the bad news. And that, that's why Ernest Becker, at the end of Escape from Evil, uh, he wonders if we're a viable form of life. And so following Robert J. Lifton, the psychohistorian who wrote a book called uh, Destroying the World to Save It, uh, Lifton says, you know, uh, this may not bode well for humanity now that we possess the weapons of mass destruction that can reduce the earth into a smoldering heap, that we may be the first species to have the ignominious distinction uh, of being responsible for our own extinction. Right, yeah, we're going to win. The, we're going to all win the Darwin Award. Yeah, there you go. That's correct. <laughs> we should keep the first um, prize. I want to. I do want to explore that. That's a, a very big part of what I wanted to talk with you about. Um, but just to back up a little bit, um, what happens for people who are more than ready to die, who who want to die due yeah. to you know physical pain. I've known a number of people who... Well, so that's the counterpoint. And so the, back to your reference to hospice earlier, mm-hmm. and, and people who may not want to die, but realize that this will happen nevertheless. Eric Erickson, who I'm a big fan of, uh, makes a distinction in his eight stages of man. I would hope he'd include the rest of the human race if he were writing the book today. But, you know, he talks about old age where there's a psychological fork in the road uh, between despair and what he calls ego integrity. Mm-hmm. And, and he says, look, some people as they get older just become more bitter and more angry and more fearful and disenchanted. And life does not end well uh, under those circumstances. Uh, on the other hand, um, folks who work in hospice, as you've pointed out, and my wife Maureen is a psychiatric social worker and the bereavement counselor for our local hospice. And, uh, you know, they're the best people on earth, as far as I can tell, because they're the ones that are directly involved in helping people and their families at these most difficult times. Yeah, it must, they, it must as, a, as a hospice worker. It must really keep your priorities clear. Absolutely, I think. And I, and it, but what they have noticed is what you've mentioned, which is, you know, sometimes our impending mortality actually brings the best out in us. 
And for us, the distinction is whether or not it's a fleeting reminder of death as to as opposed to like a very sustained confrontation with the reality of our mortality. So when when death reminders turn us into, uh, you know, to be glib, you know, kind of racist serial killers, uh, those are the kind of fleeting ones uh, like, you know, filling in a sentence about your death or stopping in front of a funeral home or being subliminally reminded of death. Mm-hmm. And in our experiments, what we've determined is that what's really going on here is that when death enters your mind, metaphorically, when you're aware of it, uh, there's an active suppression process that's immediately instigated, that's geared towards just getting death out of your mind as fast as possible. All right, but Uh, When you're in the hospital in the hospice or when you're in terrible pain and you're yearning for death, that's a whole different, much more sustained, uh, much more conscious confrontation. And, And, of course, this is what all the religions and the philosophies of the world have been urging us to do. Uh, for eons, you know, you have the Tibetan book of living and dying. You've got the medieval monks that uh, work with a skull uh, on their table. You've got Albert Camus saying, come to terms with death. Thereafter, anything is possible. So here's another one of these ironies. If we spend our lives trying to banish the thought of death at all costs, oh, well, that, that's when bad things happen. That's when, it, you know, it manifests itself in other ways uh, that either make us mean or, as Kierkegaard put it, we tranquilize ourselves with the trivial by drinking, by going shopping, by watching endless law and order marathons. And, of course, I've done all of those. Mm-hmm. All right, but that's different than taking the time, energy, and expending the emotional resources uh, to have a mature confrontation with the inevitability of death, which we all should be having. I don't, you know, if, if, if anything that we've been talking about today makes any sense at all, then it's shocking uh, how unprepared we are uh, that this is never really mentioned. No one goes through a standard American education and is even taught that death is something to be concerned about. Yeah, I know. It's We dress corpses up like they're going to a party. That's correct. Um, yeah, I've been thinking a lot, though, about how dangerous it is now to not only uh, to be denying one's own death, but to be denying what's going on in terms of the threats to our actual existence as a species, and not to mention all the other species that we're wiping out every day. So um, your talk, uh, Humanity at the Crossroads, I thought was really on point. And you began it with outlining those... the, the. the three threats that you see as most pressing. Um, let's talk a little bit about this now that we're at the fun part of the interview. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Species extinction. Yeah. Well. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that uh, it's not looking good. I, I don't think our chances are great to be here much longer. No, I, again, I, I, and it, it sure sounds like a doomsday prophecy. I know, I know. Um, 
But I, I don't know if you, do you know Jared Diamond? Not yeah. necessarily personally. So, you know, he wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel. Yes, I met him once, yes. Oh, okay. I would love to meet him. And then yeah. his book after that was Collapse, How Societies Choose to Succeed or Fail. Yeah. And Diamond makes an important point because, see, I, a lot of times I'll go around and I'll give talks like the one humanity at the crossroads, which I don't I was sick that day. I wish I was able to do that better, but the, but didn't change the substance of it. But, the, the you know, I'll, I'll talk about these things and people be like, this is ridiculous. Things have never been better. Yeah. And truth be told, for many of us, uh, you know, in the first world, right. that just happens to be a fact. When They're you're not biggest, so good for the three million people who are, I mean, three billion people who are hungry. No, absolutely. But and also either, for, I mean, just the, the amount oh. of war and the desert. Oh, yeah. It just, it, no, so true. Did uh, you see the New York Times story yesterday on basically, you know, of course, we've heard that for ISIS, rape is a, um, it's a recruiting tool, but I mean, it's so incredibly um, organized. Well, that's, you know, here Freud, uh, you know, is uh, extraordinarily prescient as he was about a lot of things when he just said raping and killing go together. That was his point, his most unnerving point uh, in civilization and its discontents, which is, you know, it, it takes very little for the veneer of civilization to be peeled back. Yeah. And whenever that happens, if you'll pardon the profanity, it's fighting and fucking. And then things get bad. So anyway, to get back to your question, you know, what I said in that Humanity at the Crossroads talk is, yeah, I I think that uh, this is a somewhat precarious moment. And I think the three things that I tried to draw attention to was one you've already mentioned, and that is that. Um, there's no sign that war is, has in any way abated. And there's any number of flashpoints right now in Africa, in the Middle East. I'm sure there's places that I'm leaving out uh, where what appear to be local skirmishes can metastasize into world wars. You know, people forget that World War One started, uh, you know, in a small town with a guy getting assassinated yeah. and so on. So there's that. And uh, then, of course, is the issue of environmental degradation. And, um, you know, it's shocking. And frankly, only in America, really, uh, does one have to argue uh, in defense of the proposition that humanly created, uh, you know, global warming is probably a misnomer. I like the people who say, let's talk about climate instability because it's going to be both hot and cold. All right. But there's no doubt that we are very close, if not already beyond the point where we have changed the planet to render it unfit uh, for human habitation. And, 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 you know, I've been actually just uh, on my own studying climate science for the last (laughs) year or more, uh, pretty much every day. Wow. And it's um, not something I recommend. Um, But uh, there are triggers that yes. are now on underway that are on runaway. Um, That's correct. And that so, even if we stopped all carbon yeah. emissions today, which of course we're not going to be doing, uh, even if we did that, the warming is going to continue and into in such a way that it it's hard to imagine how this is going to be inhabitable. That's correct. So not to pile on, right? 
but you're right. So I, I read, uh, you know, science and nature, and I don't understand 90% of it. But what I do understand, you know, everyone is always mocking like Al Gore, you know, with an inconvenient truth. And the fact is, is that Gore was wrong because he He was overly optimistic. That's exactly right. Yeah. And and so and of course, I mean that as a compliment because he was trying desperately to point out the magnitude of the problem that he misunderestimated, to borrow a phrase from George W. Bush, uh, by several orders of magnitude. And when James Hansen, you know, you know, says, look, uh, we are in desperate trouble. Yeah. And it's for the reasons that you just alluded to. Not only are things happening much faster than we thought, uh, but we're reaching the point where we're going to trigger unpredictable changes that are going to make, you know, like the Hurricane Katrina seem like a sun shower. Yes. Yeah. 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 And those uh, big ice caps melting yeah <laughs> does not bode well I no mean, it does just... not bode well not with like the russians and chinese and of course exxon too ready to jump in to incinerate the planet even more by extracting every bucket of oil that they can yeah they're rubbing their hands they can't wait till that ice melts you know yeah, can get through all the, you know wow. they can get through a lot easier but you know i heard you say um in an interview that um that appealing to people's symbolic immortality is more effective than scaring them. Yes. So I say this both uh, on conceptual grounds as well as on empirical grounds. So, you know, one thing that... uh, And let's just for our audience explain what we mean by that. Well, yes. And uh, so symbolic immortality is... Um, and this is a term that Robert J. Lifton coined. And, and what Becker says, and also Becker alludes to it, if not calling it this, is that, well, you know, none of us want to die. And one way of not dying is to live forever or to subscribe to a view where you're going to come back. You know, the reincarnations, heavens and souls of all the world's great religions. Another way, and this, this idea goes back to the ancient Greeks, is to accept that you may not be here forever, uh, but to be comforted by the proposition that there'll be some vestigial remnant of your existence that persists over time. So anything from having children uh, to amassing a great fortune to producing a great work of art or music or science uh, is a way to symbolically extend ourselves over time. And so common sense might dictate that, oh, okay, if if there are environmental problems, let's just tell people that if we don't fix these problems, we're going to die. Well, it turns out that that, backs, that backfires mm-hmm. um, uh, when you when people are reminded of their mortality. And they are asked to play like a simulated forest management game. Mm -hmm. And they get to choose how many trees they're going to cut down. And they're told, look, if you harvest too many trees, the whole forest is going to die. And people reminded of their mortality uh, say they're going to cut down more trees. And people that are reminded of their mortality Uh, They want to go shopping more and and consume conspicuously. People who are reminded of their mortality and who smoke cigarettes, uh, if their self-esteem is based on the idea that smoking is cool, uh, they say they're going to smoke even more cigarettes. Mm -hmm. And so direct appeals to fear 
uh, will backfire. Uh, and there's some remarkable studies because a lot of countries now, I don't know if you've been abroad lately and seen some cigarette packages in Europe where they have like, you know, pictures of yeah. uh, diseased lungs. Well, there's a European team of researchers who shows that that makes people smoke more. So people and go into resignation and apathy. That's correct. Or that's correct. So one is is self-medication in the service uh, of despair. And another is that sometimes uh, you're doing these things because you're boosting your self-esteem if you think those behaviors are cool. And so what other researchers have proposed, and I think they're on the right track here, is, you know, Let's go through the back door, psychologically speaking, uh, and let's try to appeal uh, to this idea of leaving a legacy or having some kind of symbolic immortality. So there was a study recently published by some folks, I believe they're at Columbia University, and what they showed was just asking people, do you want to be remembered over time in the future? And of course, who's going to say no? Everybody wants to be remembered. Uh, when they ask people that, as opposed to a control condition, what they found is that people became more concerned about the environment uh, and more committed to doing something uh, that's environmentally friendly. And if it's not obvious why that's the case, the, the point is, is that if you want to be remembered, then there's got to be somebody around to remember you. And if the environment's not conducive to human habitation, that's not likely to happen. So as, as maybe odd and simple-minded as it sounds, I think that's a viable approach that we need to seriously entertain. Yeah, I mean, of course, again, it would be, uh, it'll work better on the people who are prone to um, beliefs in general. That's correct. Yeah. Um, I, by the way, I was also interested in your, it was just an aside you threw out in an interview, but you said that perhaps you used your own intellectual intellectualization <laughs> of terror management theory as your own form of terror management. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, people, um, when I, I've spoken to people over the years, um, what has often come up is that, well, we, this being my buddies Jeff and Tom and I, uh, that that we have some kind of exalted position that um, excludes us from these universal human concerns by virtue of the development of this theory. And our point has always been quite the contrary, uh, that we're no different than other people. And um, this is not always something to be proud of. But one of the reasons that we were attracted to Becker's ideas is that we realized that they applied to us also. And, and so uh, we tranquilize ourselves with the trivial. We at times find ourselves disparaging other people because they're merely different. And, and so when folks say to us, oh, uh, after studying these things for so many years, has that help you actually come to terms with your own mortality? Uh, and I, I half joking, but also quite seriously say, no, I'm not sure that it has, mm -hmm. because 
you know, one of the things that has happened is that we've been doing this professionally for going on 40 years now. And, the, I, you know, developing these ideas and testing them uh, in the lab has, as you put it, and I think I've put it in other interviews, well, that's allowed us to intellectualize the idea of death and in so doing divest it of the emotional uh, affect that it would otherwise produce. And so in that sense, terror management theory has been our terror management mechanism. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the truth is it's very hard because all we know is being. That's right. It's very hard to, you know, even conceive of, you know, non-being. <laughs> Absolutely. In fact, you know, and Freud would take it one step further. You said very hard. Freud says inconceivable and impossible. Yeah. You know, he yeah. says something along the lines that to the id, uh, it, the id is incapable of conceiving of its own non-existence. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and again, he challenges us. Freud just says, if, if you're sufficiently courageous to sit still long enough, every one of us has a hard time imagining a world in which we do not reside yeah. in it, myself right. included. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, you touched a little bit on this a minute ago, but I also wanted you to speak about, I, I found very intriguing, your list of forms of transcendence at the end of the book. Um, I thought they were very, com very complete. Um, well, we do too, not because <laughs> we made them up, but rather we borrowed them, um, in this case, from Robert J. Lifton, who uh -huh. talks about modes of symbolic immortality. And uh, you know my book, or our book, rather, better than I do, so I may actually <laughs> Well, I wanted you in particular to speak about the last two, because the first few, other than the biological one, where people think they can achieve where they have a sense of going on through through their children, and maybe one could argue their genes do get to go on. Um, but um, but I loved the last two in particular. Uh, the what was it? The um, what was maybe was the, it creative and the, natural? Oh, it, was the, it was the natural transcendence. Oh, and, and, the and the experiential transcendence. Yes. All right. Well, this is I think um, this is maybe the most hopeful. Um, take-home message, uh, because otherwise, uh, you know, it, it looks pretty bleak. So at the end of the book, Escape from Evil, uh, you know, Becker wonders whether or not we're a viable form of life. Uh, he, you know, he literally says, uh, you know, maybe self-conscious pieces of mortal meat is not such a good idea. And of course, that's a sobering message. But uh, Robert and by the J. way, just let me interrupt something you oh. might find interesting. Some famous biologist in the, I think in the 20th century, proposed that it's very likely that life forms elsewhere in the universe never make it beyond a certain point of technological development. That oh, they, that's right. That they wipe themselves out at that point. Yeah, so I guess that's reassuring that <laughs> we're, we're in the same boat as other critters. All right, good point. Well, anyway, you know, so but to get back to your yeah. question, Catherine, what what Lifton says, and he, you know, he offers us uh, these different flavors of symbolic immortality, and uh, the ones that you mentioned are what I find most comforting, as well as appealing, and so. Oh, one is what Lifton calls natural transcendence, and that's the idea that we identify with all life, uh, all of nature, 
or even the universe. Uh, and, um, you know, this is kind of like, uh, oh, you know, the transcendentalists, the Ralph Waldo Emerson's mm-hmm. and Walt Whitman's of the world, mm-hmm. who, who rather than being horrified by the fact that we're part of nature, uh, uh, glorify that. And it, it's really an idea that goes back to the Epicureans who just said, well, you know, all of us are created out of inanimate matter and all of us will essentially return into inanimate matter. And this is not only nothing to be afraid of, it's something that we should find exhilarating and uplifting. Mm-hmm. And, and I sometimes say in my sessions, Sheldon, it's an experience of eternity for a very short time. That's nice, and I, I love that. I'm going to need some of those sessions because that's I, I, I like that. Uh, and I, I hope we'll talk about this idea again because I do think that in our finest moments, we have glimpses of eternity. And you made an important point earlier, which is in those moments, we're also quite self-forgetful. We literally transcend ourselves in the best sense of the word. And so I I think that's one way uh, of realizing uh, that in a literal way, we have always been here and we will always be here. So Otto Rank. Uh, He has a very lovely phrase when he says, we are temporal representatives of the cosmic primal force. Mm. And at first when I read that, I'm like, go, dude, you've had too much acid. No, it makes perfect sense. But it's a a lovely phrase. He's like, well, you know, if we believe the theory of evolution, then we're all descended from an original form of life. And that makes us related to everything that's ever been alive, everything that is alive, and everything that will be alive. And that gets back to how you put it in a very lovely way. And that is that, uh, you know, we are momentary partakers of eternity in in both the literal and symbolic sense of the word. And I, I find that, you know, super comforting. And, you know, and then I also like the the experiential transcendence that uh, Lifton refers to. Uh, And, uh, you know, that's when one partakes of eternity through an exaggerated sense uh, of wonder and and awe. Uh, And, you know, that's what all of the the Eastern kinds of uh, uh, takes on, on meditation uh, and in the West, we've got, um, well, we usually associate it with hallucinogenic drugs. Do, do you know, um, oh, geez, uh, Aldous Huxley, sure. The Doors of Perception? Sure. So when Huxley takes like an elephant dose of mescaline, and he's 50 years old at this point, and, and then he describes how he was looking at the leg of a chair for like two hours, and, and, and then they say, well, you know, well, all right, well, what do you think about time? And Huxley's reaction was, there seems to be plenty of it. <laughs> and, but, but uh, and, you know, which is lovely, but I, I think the point is, is that um, these two modes uh, of partaking, even in passing, uh, of these feelings of eternity, uh, you know, that being natural and experiential transcendence, uh, you know, are frankly available to all of us. And do not in any way require a grotesque distortion of truth or reality. In fact, they're both based on uh, very starkly, in my estimation, accurate assessments of the way the world is and was and will be. Mm, Beautiful. 
<laughs> I agree. Well, thank you so much. It's it's such a delight to. Uh, well, it's to, my pleasure. It's been delightful talking to you, also. This has been in the deep with Catherine Ingram. If you would like to make a tax-deductible donation in support of these podcasts, or find out more about my work, please visit katherineingram.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Kath Ingram for notice of additional podcasts and other musings. Till next time. Mm-hmm.